Welcome to the Better Future podcast series brought to you by Driven by Design Award Programs. I'm Mark Bergen, the founder of Driven by Design, and joining me is... Kirsten Mann. I'm Global VP of Product Experience for Oracle's Construction and Engineering Global Business Unit. This podcast series is a special series where we focus on design in the boardroom. It's a series of infill recordings and live panels with design giants from around the world, and we discuss how boards are leveraging design to accelerate economic outcomes. In other words, how is design being managed up, down, and across the organisation? In this episode, Mark and Matt talk health. In a world full of people self-diagnosing via Google, communicating health has developed new challenges and responses required. Mark and Matt explore how health has evolved and how design has been leveraged to accelerate the update of new clinically significant developments. Matt Eastwood and I am the Global Chief Creative Officer of McCann Health. Welcome to a conversation about design in the boardroom, Matt. Here we are in New York. It's a new aspect of the McCann business, McCann Health. And all I can think when I hear that is that boards are saying we need a hand and we and we're in the health industry and we need you to focus on us not be distracted by red bull ads as well as helping us with our health problem yeah most definitely i mean uh surprisingly it's not that new a division of mccann it's uh it's probably been around for 18 years or so so oh, so it's actually almost uh, in this country a couple of years will be legal to drink yes exactly <laughs> so, exactly I thought, I thought yeah. it was much fresher yeah no it's uh it's been around for a while i mean it's grown uh exponentially and, you know, the interesting thing and, and a lot of the reason why, you know, I joined the company is the growth um, in the health and wellness space is just phenomenal compared to what's happening in traditional packaged goods. You know, every year, every one of our clients that I worked with in my previous role would reduce their spend by 10, 15, 20, 30 percent. Um, and the opposite is true in health. Like, I think that... Uh, one, because uh, brands uh, in the health space are uh, having a sort of an imperative to deliver results in the first two to three years because they're only on the shelf for seven years before they go um, generic. Um, and the other is because I think there's a lot of companies that are expanding the definition of health and, and becoming health-based companies. So I want to then actually just uh, help the listeners get a bit of context there. When you're referring to people being on the shelf for seven years, we're talking pharmaceuticals there. Exactly, yeah. And that expanded space then comes into services like 23andMe doing the um, uh, genome testing. There are a whole range of other products that are out there which are you know really evergreen. Yep. They don't have that cliff that yep. where they go into the generic market. So that's exciting times for you as well because you can take people who are partway through their journey and help them to upgrade yep. with the sophistication that you've got. But that sophistication comes down to the fact that you've been able to create some measurement and actually help boards to understand they've invested in an initiative, they're getting a return or they're not getting a return so that they can actually review strategy and, and, and work out what's next. Yeah, I mean, and I think the, the interesting thing about this space is – is that absolute sort of confluence of uh, of strategy, science, and creativity? That it isn't, uh, you know. In some ways, uh, traditional uh, marketing has tried to bring the science of data to that world, whereas uh, you know science is built into what we do here. So, uh, um, I think, you know, f as an example, you know, we are working with um, an organisation to try and uh, redefine the issues around opioid addiction. 
So um, at the moment, it's just seen as like a weakness, like you're an addict and it's your fault. But what the science says is it's not. It's an actual chemical change in your brain that changes the structure of your brain and doesn't allow you to get off that drug. Oh, okay. So, so the science is now getting, which is you were prescribed something which had a, a detrimental effect. Yep. To you, and therefore there's a bit of a cleanup. And, and now you are stuck on it, and yeah. and and it's not your fault because you you're weak. It's not because you like the feeling. It's because your brain chemistry has changed. Um, and so you know we work we we're using that kind of science and evidence base to help change the discussion so that and, and it and it's wide ranging because it goes right up to governments. You know we have to change the way they address the problem instead of sort of treating them like drug addicts and going, well, you're the same as you may as well be on cocaine or whatever. It's not the same. So I think that that kind of evidence is is the sort of thing that we constantly use to help convince boards and of this is the, the way to go. A couple of months ago we wrote a piece about uh, about how health is changing from being a, a stack that was about science, practitioners and funding into now actually also having in that stack that it's that uh, the traditional stack, but it's also got communications and experience. Now, it's one thing to save me from cancer or, or, or you know, so I don't get killed by it, but my life is is terrible. Yeah. And, what and you know, organization, organizations like Maggie's are then working, well, how do we go help both the, the person who's surviving cancer but also the family because life can be pretty challenging after you've actually had yep. a good health outcome. Yep. And, and that's interesting where you're now seeing, I know, with the NHS where they began to go look at what were the infection rates in hospitals and make that publicly available so people had confidence and they could actually have a better experience of what was occurring for them. We're in very new territory and it's going to need some people who are experts in that to actually work out how to take the best out of each area yep. and bring that to a new challenge for a new client. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and I and I think the the approach that we take is is very much from that individual level to the sort of community level to the society level to the global level. And I think you have to address global health issues. Um, uh, you know, like uh, the fact that uh, antibiotics are becoming redundant because they're stopping. Uh, you know, they don't work anymore uh, as as well. Um, so you've kind of got to look at those big, broad. Um, kind of global health issues and then take it right down to uh, the, the the individual level as well and how to, so I think this sort of idea of this holistic health system uh, is is huge and then the the big shift is is in places like China where um, you know there's just not enough doctors to service that population um, so they've had to through technology find ways to um, empower consumers to start looking after their own health a little bit more. So there's a huge growing trend around AI and and how y- you can sort of take control of your own health um, in the times when you can't see a doctor. And I think that is that is kind of a, um, a, a big shift that I think is going to spread throughout the world. You know, I mean, I think um, even the US, the healthcare system here is broken in many ways. Um, you know, you go to see a GP, you've got seven minutes to tell them everything. Um, and I think uh, what what we're seeing is that uh, you know benefits like AI, like 
uh, data like 23andMe that's going to be able to say, okay, you are pre, you, we can see from your blood that you are precancerous or from your DNA that you are precancerous. So let's do this treatment now, et cetera. And I think that is going, is going to completely control the, um, the sort of patient centricity of health because it comes back to me and I can actually become like a, a concierge managing all the different people and things going through my life and how that affects my overall health. And I'm glad you brought up 23andMe because 23andMe's history was they came out as a tech startup, they re, they were in the market, they didn't have a, a part of the organisation which is called regulatory compliance, which is how all all organisations that are working in health need to be compliant with the regulations. It, it's self-explanatory, yep. but somebody forgot to do it. Then when they were given a cease and desist order by the FTA, they then turned around and, and, and rethought things and they decided to go and actually bring in the regulatory compliance culture. They hired some really great people and then they worked to go and actually not only take their previous product but improve it so that they, quite frankly, weren't shocking the bejesus out of people when they, were, when they found out that they were precancerous or they had a marker that indicated that they may have a higher exposure to, yep. to future bad health. And they managed to get that to the point that the FDA said, sure, we're going to actually endorse several of these tests that you go do because they were seen to be useful and helping to, to, in that you know, chain of events that were taking place. And that, that's a really important thing about the organisations who are understanding that we can't just go in half-cocked. Yep. We have to go in that you're, you're fully loaded, that you're ready to go and actually deliver to market and meet the expectations of, of the market and the regulators. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, you know, because we work in an industry that is there is no room for error. You know, it's, I remember <laughs> I used to do work with um, uh, GE and I remember when Jeff Immelt was the CEO and he, he had this saying which was get to 70% and take a swing. Like get it as good as you think you can get it and then go for it. You can't do that in health like because the outcomes are death. You know, they're tragic. So, um, you know, I think that the 23andMe thing is a great example of ambition is great. You can see what they were trying to do. But you can't uh, kind of cut around the edges and go, well, we'll just sort of sneak it through. Uh, so I think the the fact that they've now taken this much more robust approach to regulations and and making sure that the the FDA approves of what they're doing, et cetera, is um you know is symptomatic of what you have to do in the health industry to survive. And I think the 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 big thing for them is that you know a company like GSK then invests in twenty three and Me and and sees the future of like okay that's how we can build that into the sort of holistic health um, that we're hoping to offer. You know. And it, you know, and it's it's really important that we get people to understand that some of the the boogeymen that everyone thought that existed inside inside DNA uh, testing, it's not there. Yeah, you know the the science of proteomics has come a long way. We know that you might have a marker, but that marker doesn't actually mean that there'll be activation. But what we do know is that of the population of the people who have this type of cancer or this disease a fair percentage of them had that marker yeah, and we haven't found anybody who's got that disease who didn't have the marker. Yep. So you okay, so, so now we're getting an idea of what to be cautious of. Yeah, It's a little bit like in your car when the um, icy road thing comes up yep. and saying, 
you're in a condition now that could be a car accident. You Doesn't may be mean fine, it will be. but yeah, yeah, exactly. And that communication is is really important because I remember, you know, when it was first brought in that the DNA testing was going to be available, it was <gasps> your privacy and people will know yeah. that you're a future cancer person. And, you know, it was sci-fi. It's like you're going to be ostracised and you, and you won't be able to be part of society. Nobody will ensure you. I think we're past that phase, but we haven't yet communicated to people that there are life benefits and there's still a certain amount of fear. So I suppose that's where the likes of McCann Health come in to go help communicate that because you can't get the overall benefit of a a sophisticated health stack if people actually have misconception at one point. Yeah, look, absolutely. And and I think it's funny, even at at the very basic level of that conversation is – is data security and and how secure is my data and if I give it to you, what's the result of what's going to happen and and who else gets to see it and who shares it etc. So, you know, um, that I think that's a huge uh, kind of issue and it goes beyond health and you know we're seeing like, you know, the issues that Facebook Facebook is really being destroyed by privacy. You know, the lack of privacy. It's not because people don't like it. It's just because they don't want to. They've given everything over and then the data is being stolen and hacked and sold and whatever, you know. Um, and the challenge for Facebook now is colony collapse. Yeah. You know, the yeah. idea is that we're meant to share with each other, but I'm noticing the number of people who haven't actually cancelled their Facebook accounts, but they're not participating in yeah. the network. Yeah. And then all of a sudden the value of the network diminishes dramatically yeah. when there's a lack of participation. Yep. And I think people are searching for an alternative. So, but you know, it, it, it's tricky, especially around DNA testing, because there's still there's still bad stories out there. You know, I don't know if you heard uh, one. I'm not going to mention the brand because that's unfair to them. But you know, one of the big companies uh, kind of reissued the results when they found that they'd been able to improve their test their testing. So no. this is the one that sort of says oh, what? you are 50 percent Australian, 30 percent English, and 10 percent Swedish. That's what they were telling people. And then they came back two years later and said, actually, we've improved the science and now you're not Swedish at all. You're, you know, and, and that kind of uh, like doubt around, okay, well, how accurate is this information is not going to help the 23s and me's. But, um, and, uh, you know, I think they just, that, that's where the regulations are so important because, you know, fake science, which is, a, there's a huge amount of it out there. And, you know, we're even talking about at the moment of, of maybe, Sort of bringing together a um, a coalition of uh, of sort of pharmaceutical companies to to find a way to somehow endorse real health information versus fake health information because you know everyone goes to Doctor Google to find out what's wrong with me and Google tells you you're you know you need to have your leg amputated and it's like I think if we jumped on Doctor Google now yeah within five minutes we'd both be dying yeah we'd be we'd both be like going oh my god it's the end and, yeah. and both of us are sitting here listening yeah. we, we seem to be in quite good health but in five minutes yeah. we could find that yeah, oh actually I've got an ache here that means but that's the thing how how do you separate you know accurate and evidence based uh, health information from point of you know points of view and and opinion and which the internet is obviously full of. So, uh, you know, that that's one of the big things is that people uh, and why it's so important that we are helping build brands because I think there was a time where it didn't matter who the brand was that the drug came from. But now I think, uh, you know, people will go, all right, I like the, I, I think the drug is a good thing, but who's making it? Is it Purdue? Is it 
uh, Pfizer is, and and that's important because the the ethics of that company are directly reflected in the, in the drugs that they're releasing. So, I want to go and actually get into a little in a, into a topic which is about um, simple answers to complex circumstances, and we know that has to go do with obviously that example of the how Swedish you are. Yeah. It was a simple answer to complex uh, circumstance. Probably should never have been simplified <laughs> yes. down that way. We also know the that the idea that the reason that your child is autistic is because of a vaccine yep. is people want a very simple answer to why that occurred yep. and they've clung on yep. to something which is junk science. Yes, yeah. And then if we also go look at the Theranos idea, which was people wanted the simple answer, which was it, it, testing blood's got to be a lot simpler yep. than what's going on. Yep. And it, it it seems to be the dirge of everybody, which is we've got a group of people in society who will actually subscribe to a simple answer. Yes, yeah. Which sends them in the wrong direction and then creates massive problems. Even the measles outbreak that's been yep. here in New York. Yeah. It was people who were searching for a simple answer to a complex circumstance. How do you tackle that when you're trying to actually help these companies? Because if they've got rock solid science, yeah, and then they've got people who are doing woo woo science out yeah. there, how do you begin to work with that? Is that done by weight of you know reach and frequency? Yeah, is it yeah. done through influencing? You were talking about the coalition of you know this is the trusted source. Yeah, yeah. Look, at, and it's a huge challenge because. Uh, you know, there's a lot of a lot of us want to believe what we want to believe. You know, if and I think Theranos is a great example. We wanted what that solution would offer us, so we were prepared to accept. Okay, you know, I'll believe that they're doing all the due diligence and making sure that it works. And you know, who are we to even ask? Is it fake? Because we we wouldn't think of that. But um, I mean, I, I think it, it's something that we've tried really hard to build into our company because we're dealing with those big global health issues. Um, so uh, last year we formed something called the Global Scientific Council and that is made up of 450 PhDs or above who work for McCann Health around the world and it's like a resource that – Hang on, well, just pull back. <laughs> Hang on, pull back a second. I'm gonna, we're going to keep going about <laughs> yeah. this resource. So you've got a team of over 450 PhDs or higher – yeah, working at McCann Health. Working at McCann, working day to day at McCann Health. I had no idea which is, that there was that depth of scientific knowledge yeah, behind what yeah. you're doing. And these are guys like our global medical director is a guy called Dan Carucci. He was one of the original people who was mapping the malaria genome to come up with the vaccination. You know, like these are not these are people who are doing amazing. You know, global world changing uh, health. Uh, outcome, changing outcomes. Um, so that for us is incredibly important. And when we deal with clients to make sure that the evidence is is properly assessed and even if they come to us with their own evidence, we put it through our own scientific council to to test it ourselves and understand, you know, is there, are there any issues that we can foresee? And, um, and, and, and that is interesting because a lot of the projects we work on are um, – uh, at the developments, you know, they're still in trials, so they're not even approved yet. So we'll talk to them three years out before they're even approved. So, and many times we've seen drugs that just never get approval from the FDA because, you know, of some issue in the way it was 
delivering outcomes or whatever. So, you know, so that science is really, really important for us. Now, I interrupted you when I was just shocked to hear how, many, <laughs> how deep that, that expert base is there. But you were talking about the capacity that you're building that's off the back of that. So you're building up this understanding, which is probably getting where science meets human factors. Yep. And there's a, a term in Australia, which is it's an unusual technical term, which is batshit crazy. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> and and so many of the woo-woo theories that come out there, you're going, you know, if you enter into an, a discussion with a fool, you're just going to look like a fool. Yeah. But the reality is these have now become the context yep. that people need to go and address. So you've got this immense, you know, clinical, scientific, evidence-based capacity. And then you've got somebody out there who happens to be a um, baseballer's wife, a, a, a football player's wife who's running clinics about some woo-woo science that's out there and is getting media coverage because she helps you know, sell newspapers or whatever. Yes, yeah. That's a really complex yeah. – because it's snake oil yeah. basically, isn't it? Well, especially as when it relates to health because the the – if you make a mistake, the outcomes are dire. You know, you, uh, and I think that's why it's so important. You know, for me, it, it's shocking right now that the scientific community, to ninety nine percent, has said we are suffering from global warming. Yet our global leaders are like, yeah, I don't, I don't think so. No, I don't see it. It's like this. This is not a question of it's true or it's false. This is scientifically proven. So I, I still, I find it frightening, and I think that kind of leadership is what is allowing people, uh, you know, consumers, everyday consumers to reject science and go, well, no, it doesn't fit with what, what I believe, so no. And so we've now got a, particularly through the idea that everybody can be a broadcaster or a publisher, the idea of having controlled channels where people have to have merit, that there's peer review, yep. those days are gone. We've got a huge capacity of misinformation that's out there and there's also, as I say, state actors who are trying to make sure that misinformation is there because that yep. helps them. Yep. And then they set up an environment yep. of misinformation. At some point we're going to have a calamity yeah. where we realise that we need to go back to those trusted trusted people. And I think particularly this opioid phase in the United States is yeah. very interesting. Yeah. I was talking to somebody who works in um, support for doctors who have actually developed a habit. Yep, yep, which is not uncommon, yeah. And I was being told that out of the anaesthetists who have overdosed, so these are people who know how to apply yep. the drug, yep. that it was always the same opioid that begins with F right. that was actually where they got it wrong. Right, interesting. Yeah. Every one of them that's overdosed yeah. was actually on what people have now got as a street drug. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, this thing is – and, and the potency of it is phenomenal. It's an unsafe yeah. substance. It's yeah. like radioactive material yeah. that's been well, on the streets. Well, it should never have made it to market, and I don't understand how it did. And But then, you know, you read all the – you know, we were talking about the, in, the indictments that have happened against pharmaceutical companies who – has been found were bribing FDA officials and all sorts of, you know, underhanded criminal activity and that's and, and lobbying, et cetera, and that's how it happened, you know. 
So I'm interested there because there's one of the things that we always hear is the dimensionality, giving some metrics, giving some scale to things. Or is it the craziness of the misinformation is just understood or are you having to go put a dimension behind how much is the tide of misinformation, how much is the tide of reliable information back to boards? Because they're investing money. They probably want to yep. know how far they're along the journey. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a it's a big challenge in the health industry because, you know, what we are dealing with, uh, you know, big global problems or like – around obesity, for instance. And there's so much misinformation about obesity and how it works and how your body functions when it's, uh, you know, how hunger works, what role that plays within obesity. And um, so the difficulty is when it's something like that, which is, you know, it's not a rare disease. It's not like uh, only 10 people have it. You know, hundreds of millions of people suffer from that. There's an abundant overabundance of information and some of it's just straight out crap you know it's just not true so it, it's re- and it's really hard to help consumers navigate through that so a lot of what we do when we're dealing with um, uh, you know a, a problem like that is we we make sure that uh, there's an unbranded website somewhere that that contains what we think is the most accurate information so and I think that's where uh, the importance of trust in brands uh, is really going to play a big role I mean if you compare, if you talk about news, you know, you go, well, what what newspapers or what news sources do I trust? You know, you go, all right, well, the New York Times feels like it's had a long history. Great. And then in terms of health, you, you're starting to go, well, uh, do I trust Pfizer? Do I trust, you know, Abbott? Do I trust? Because, and, I, and I'm going to look at their history and go, what have, what have they behaved as a corporate citizen in the past? So it's, it's super important, I think, as trust falls in institutions to make sure that we are helping build that up within uh, our, our clients' brands. So that then that then brings in the uh, the rationality of trust. But you and I have been around marketing and advertising for long enough that we know that it's a non-rational being that's responding to things. Yes, yeah. And so the non-rational being says, yeah, I know that actually there's these companies out there, but they're now big pharma. Yeah. And I don't trust them. And I've got somebody on Fox and Friends who's telling me something different. Yeah. yeah. Because I like them. I like yeah. the cut of their jib. Yeah. And that's that just like. Yeah. That then usurps all of the science. Yeah. That's a like that's a empire and rebels thing, isn't it? It's yeah. Like you, yeah. You've got an insurgency who are you can't fight them because they just keep popping up everywhere. Yeah. And look, I think you have to, you know, the clients we deal with, they have to decide and be smart about when and where they can get involved in a problem. So, uh, you know, we've we've recently formed a, um, uh, a working group around uh, mental health to try and uh, uh, really the, the big aim is to try and attract uh, greater funding from everyone from governments to, uh, you know, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to try and invest in in mental health. Um, and at the beginning, as we were talking, uh, you know, and, and on, that, on that working group, there are professors from Harvard University and like proper, uh, you know, educated people in the space. Um, and when we were first talking, we were talking about, well, there's a lot of um, drug companies that care about mental health and are creating drugs to help solve the problem. Um, should we get them involved? And, and, and I think that's, that's the issue of like, 
well, what's their motivation going to be? Are they just going to be looking to find a niche to sell a product or are they looking to solve the problem? And, and I think that's, you know, it's almost impossible to answer. But in the end, we decided let's do this without them and then uh, use them to sort of uh, push the message out afterwards. Yeah, because mental health is one of the, the way that we've handled over the decades is a very low feedback environment. Yeah. The way that we actually give people serious help is when they've actually gone too far. Yeah, yeah. And and I'm, I'm always interested where privacy comes in. Yeah. And early intervention in, uh, say, uh, resilience behaviours or yeah. lack of resilience behaviours, which if addressed at that point might have been a very small diversion. Yeah. But it's when somebody becomes psychotic that we actually say, oh, now we'll get out the big yeah, tools yeah. and the big guns. And, and you go, well, maybe it's actually a lot of mental health can be improved yeah. by getting to it early. But yeah. then we bring in privacy, which means there's things that employers can't do, but they may have the understanding yeah. of what's happening. There's a long way to go yeah. to actually look at how do you get well-being in mental health. Uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, and as an extreme example, you know, uh, as part of this workshop, you know, I, I was able to interview a woman who had on multiple occasions attempted suicide and she knew she knew she was suicidal, but she was afraid to call a suicide hotline because she thought, will I be recorded? Will, will my data be recorded and who will get it? Will the government know that I've uh, called a suicide hotline? Will my insurance company find out? You know, so she, so the the fear of coming out as as someone who's suffering from suicide outweighed the 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 help that she could have got. Um, and so this, you know, that that's like a terrible example that we've got to find a way to fix that because if people are afraid to ask for help because they'll be judged or what, then you know, the system is broken. So that, that they're the kind of issues that we're looking to solve within this at the moment. And what's really interesting in the in the discussion here in the what the main thing that you've brought up is that there's lots of uh, proactive initiatives that you're doing, but getting down to hard metrics isn't isn't actually what your clients isn't what the market is so much seeking at the moment. It's actually are we doing things to try to solve this, which comes from the scientific basis, yes, which yeah. is you don't have to tell me that the research actually is going to yield. Maybe we have to invest to find the unknowns. Yes, yeah. And uh, so that's an interesting cultural thing yeah. to see how that works. So clients that are going to be coming to you who come from a scientific background already have that culture rather than people who are coming from an engineering background and say, can you give me – a fixed number that shows that you're solving this problem. Yeah, yeah. And that, uh, to me that's really important that we've been able to uncover that because so much of what we hear about boardrooms is that they want highly rational metrics, which isn't the experience I've had with boards. Yes, yeah, yeah. You know, I've seen a boards under that they are, they're cognizant of these unknowns yep. and they're also cognizant of that there's irrational human beings out there and generally, the ones you can count are the rational ones. Yeah, but it's the irrational ones that actually that have the are loudest voices, voices, yeah, yeah. or the highest propensity to spend money. Yes, yeah, yeah. So you know, it's a it's an interesting thing that we can get to the how do we make everything rational and numeric, yeah. where sometimes you've just got to make sure you've got experts that are trying to find out as fast as possible with the best methodologies. Yeah, 
and they're the people that you need to sponsor for an initiative. Well, and I think that's been the massive, um, you know, shift for me. You know, I've only been working in the health space now for four or five months, um, having come from traditional uh, marketing. And the big shift for me that I've understood now is the depth of evidence that has to be gathered before we'll take messages out. You know, it, it's much, you can't sort of, uh, have an assumption and then just go for it. You've, you, it's got to be evidence-based and it's got to be accurate and it's got to be, uh, you know, tested. Um, and of course we, we, we have to, uh, one of the roles we have is to try and take the science and we call it simple science, like turn it into simple science that people can understand because it's, you know, it's incredibly complex, and I find myself in, in boardrooms all the time with clients talking about, you know, the detail uh, behind uh, a medical, um, you know, a drug or something. And I'm like, I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't even know the words you're using. So being able to sort of translate that into language that somebody can understand, but not glossing over the issues, it, that's a that's a skill that you know we. We have entire uh, community within our company of uh, medical communication writers who often come from a medical background but understand how to sort of make that shift. And, you know, often when we hear about something being made simple, it's devalued. Yes, yeah. I, I, I was privileged to work in ballet for a while as a lighting designer as one part of my, my career. I was always fascinated that to make something look so effortless and so graceful took so much effort. yeah yeah and and I've always carried that forward with me which is sometimes to go make it simple and graceful yeah takes a long yeah. time yeah yeah and I know even you know um, say key phrases that we come up to go help advance knowledge in the community they might have taken two or three years yeah. to get to yeah them. yeah when they come they're golden yeah and I suppose that's part of by having an army of people here, you can go do that. Yeah. By having the army of people who are who have that uh, rational science base behind it, you, you're able to get there as well. And then it's actually having clients who understand that maybe you need to hunt for the unknowns mm. and not just come up with raw performance statistics yep. because that's been one of the things that's actually hamstrung a lot of marketing advertising yep. in the past is that it got down to numbers rather than actually understanding that sometimes it isn't always a yeah. measurable metric. Well, and, you know, one of the things we talk about all the time is empathy and and is that obvious in the way that a company is dealing with a patient, for instance. Um, the interesting thing is, uh, you know, we, we've, we've developed a relationship with IBM Watson, for instance, and uh, we use it to put in all the information uh, from, say, a client's website about a drug all the language they're using, or the lexicon, everything. And then we compare and contrast that to the language that's happening on patient-centric sites and uh, message boards and, and and see how close what they're saying is to what they want to hear. And, and th there's often a disconnect because, you know, marketers want to say what they want to say. This is how we want to position ourselves. It's like that, but patients are saying that's not how they want to be served up that information, and it's it's super interesting to put the the kind of the IBM Watson data behind it. That it's, it's empirical. It's like, well, this isn't us just saying. I don't think you're saying the right thing. This is look at this report that says you are not matching the needs of consumers in the way you're positioning your product or whatever. And that's how we help them sort of navigate through that. And such an important, you know. It examination of, well, what's going on in the market and how do we meet the unmet needs of the yeah. customers 
well, they're kind of telling you yeah. in, in those you know, patient-centric websites, they're giving you cues of meet us yeah. rather than us having to go yeah. meet you. Yeah. And, you know, I talked about obesity before as a, as a topic. You know, one of the things we've discovered is that doctors, many doctors sort of look at patients and just go, well, you just need to stick to it or you just need to make a bit more effort. And it's like you, the, the sort of lack of understanding of what it feels like to be on the other side of that is... And just need is such an infuriating... Yes. And, you know, listeners who haven't met me, I, I have a very efficient metabolism. Yeah. So my metabolism turns around and finds some fuel that's come in, says we don't need it, and it puts it into storage. Yep. <laughs> now, there's, there's a downside of yeah. having that efficient metabolism because you don't need all of that stuff stored. Yeah. I've been infuriated when I've been to doctors who have very inefficient metabolisms and there's not an ounce of fat on them because yep. they burn every bit of yep, fuel that yep. comes into their body. And you're going, can you actually speak to me? It, I almost feel like I'm getting mansplaining where I'm getting thin-splained. Yes. And, and I'm going, can you meet me where I'm up to? Because yep. I'm not an overeater. Yeah. I, you know, these days there is next to no sugar in my diet. Yeah. But my super efficient metabolism is still a bugger for me. Yep. I cannot work out yep. how to get rid of some. I think I had a Mars bar when I was fifteen. <laughs> I think I've still got it. So, <laughs> but but that is so key because you know until and that's where empathy is so important because if they don't look out of their own experience and go, well, I, I don't understand. I've been slim my whole life. How can you not be? You know. Um, but it's it's that that is a huge disconnect on that topic alone. That you know, and what it's done is it's kind of made you know men, women all over the world feel like failures. That kind of makes it worse, uh, and it's this sort of cycle of okay, I'm going to try and fix this problem with by eating because it makes me happy, and you know. So uh, yeah, it's it's super interesting. Kind of really, I mean, one of our jobs is to help doctors understand and empathise with patients, you know. So then in other parts of communication, we've got down to the idea of the audience of one. Yep. In a highly regulated environment such as health, you go to the audience of a million mm, mm. because of sign-offs and approvals. Yep. But then we wind up with the problem of it's not addressing the individual need. Yep. We can work out what the individual need is through AI and learning systems. Yep makes it very hard to communicate to that yes. person with focused, empathy-based information. Yep. Are you heading? Are you doing yeah, projects I, in that area? We are. I mean, I, I think what, what I'm finding interesting is the channel is really important, so how you communicate, because I think certain, you know, certain media, for instance, is much more highly regulated than others, and experiential-based um, uh, kind of health um, programs are not as heavily uh, regulated as a print ad in a news in a magazine, for instance. So maybe you're better off having um, like small centres of uh, of people who can face to face explain to you the issue of how to get over a health problem that you might be happening might might, might be having. So we're looking at ways of kind of uh, almost trying to get around that issue of like, well, how do we get the information out there in a way? Um, you know, and it's funny. One of the things that's just struck me recently is. Um, you know, in the old days, if you went to a doctor who would, you had, you know, I don't know, you had appendicitis and uh, you would say to the doctor, well, you know, 
what do you think I should, what treatment should I take? He'd say, and you know, he'd say, you can take this drug uh, or you can have it taken out or you can manage it with this. And you'd be like, well, what would you recommend? These days, doctors are unable to recommend because of the risk of litigation if they make the wrong. So they kind of say, well, I'm sorry, it's your choice. It's like, well, I'm not educated. I'm not a doctor. I don't, I'm not educated enough to make that choice. And I want your opinion. I don't just want your, uh, I don't want you to lay out the options for me. And that that's a big issue that's growing because of, uh, you know, the way the legal issues surrounding having a, having a point of view as a doctor. Matt, it's been so fantastic to go get some insights and to have a, a free-flowing conversation, which is an absolute privilege. <laughs> I appreciate your time, but no doubt you have to get back because, like, the mountain that you've got to go solve here is huge. <laughs> There's Again, a world to save. Yeah. Thank you for your time. No doubt this will be one of a few conversations that we have. appreciate your time. Yeah, awesome. Thank you.